0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance.
0: Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors.
1: Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries.
0: You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
1: You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Well, Beijing is committed to striking a trade deal with the United States, but it's really kind of ready to respond with more countermeasures. This is according to Chinese envoy Sui Tian Kai. He he called the blacklisting of Huawei an unusual act of state power against a company. We're going to hear from him in just a moment. For the latest on the U.S.-China trade talks and war, let's head to D.C. Check in with Peggy Collins. She's managing editor of the U.S. economy team from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. First of all, great to have you here. Congratulations on your new job. I'm really curious about what you folks are hearing in uh, the Washington Bureau, uh, Peggy, about kind of where we stand uh, on trade between the U.S. and China.
2: It's great to be back with you, Carol and Jason. So the trade team here has been chasing news all week and doing an incredible job of breaking scoops left and right. Essentially, this trade war is really intensified and it's heating up and it's interesting in the sense that it's happening on multiple fronts. So our trade reporter Sean Donnan and Jenny Leonard, they did a really interesting story this week about how there's a new front opening up essentially around export controls, which is a jargony term, but it's basically talking about how the Trump administration is blacklisting uh, or looking at blacklisting some Chinese companies like Huawei. And that's part of the expanding the way that they are tackling this trade war by also, expanding into these things called export controls, where it used to be constrained to military technologies. And now they're looking at broadening that to potentially apply to things like AI or 3D printing as a way of putting pressure on other countries like China.
1: And so, Peggy, as Carol mentioned, we did get a chance to catch up with the Chinese ambassador uh, to the U.S. That is Sui Tiankai. Here's what he had to say to Bloomberg.
3: Well, I think what is happening to Huawei is rather unusual. You see the mobilization of the state power against a private company. What are people really up to under the pretext of national security? We don't know. Can they really stop the technological progress? Can they really deprive people of the right to benefit from new technologies? I don't think so. And do they really
1: have the interests of the American people in mind? I don't think so either. So, Peggy, I want to point to one very specific thing he said, and I think this phraseology is not an accident. The mobilization of state power against a private company, that is a Chinese official talking about the United States. Certainly that feels like a, a bit of turn of phrase that, again, is intentional and, and maybe not what we're used to seeing or hearing in these types of negotiations. Help us understand where the Chinese are here.
2: Well, that's so um, telling Jason, too. It jumped out at me this morning as we were watching it live on BTV that, as you said, he's using that phrase state power, which oftentimes we use uh, to describe China and basically, yeah, basically say, hey, the U.S. is taking these actions against a private company and basically kind of turning it on its head. But he did, I should say, in the interview also strike a a collaborative and cooperative tone. He said multiple times that he he you know, does think that China's growth, although it has been a part of the hard work or mostly attributed to the hard work of the Chinese people over the last couple of decades, he said that China knows that they can't continue to grow without cooperating with other com- countries around the world. So he did say that they were still very open to cooperating, collaborating with the U.S. and trying to get a trade deal done.
0: Well, you know, and I'm trying to understand because it sounds like things could, you know, the U.S. constantly keeps Peggy in the background you know, the potential for escalation here and targeting more Chinese companies. At the same time, it's interesting to see the Chinese ambassador to the United States making himself very accessible. Uh, We were going to have an exclusive interview uh, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Wall Street time. uh, Bloomberg will with the uh, Huawei founder and CEO, uh, Ren Zhengfei. So I do feel like these folks are out there talking. How do we see the signs? Is it, you know, kind of balanced in terms of who might have the
2: upper hand? Does somebody have the upper hand? here. Well, we have this great piece out on the Bloomberg today, also by the economy team around the world, that basically is a scorecard almost in terms of who's actually winning in the trade war between the U.S. and China. And it's parsed out in different ways. So I think it's still evolving in terms of where we're seeing pressure on consumer prices in the U.S., how much of this is trickling down, where is China seeing pain if it is. And then each new day, our reporters are finding out more information in terms of the tactic This is still, it appears, really in flux and about a negotiation battle, really, between the U.S. and China and how we're putting pressure on them and they are on us to get a deal done. But it does look like there's a long way to go still.
1: Well, and we didn't even get into the notion that we're, and you have another story about currencies. I mean, there's so many uh, different complications here. And to Carol's point, it's hard to discern kind of who's on what side of all this, Peggy, what should we be thinking about just 30 seconds to go as we go into the long weekend? What are the, the next big steps here?
2: Well, I think, as you, you said, Jason, one of the things that we're going to have to watch for is certainly market reaction and how much that plays into the, Trump's reaction and how much he presses more on this front. But also we've got the G20 meeting coming up in June, right. and we'll see whether or not there is an opportunity for them to talk at that point.
0: All right, we're going to leave it there. Hey, Peggy, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Peggy Collins, she is managing editor of our U.S. economy team here at Bloomberg News. She's joining us from her 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Check her out on Twitter at MKM Collins.
3: Come with me,
1: and you'll be in a
3: world
0: of pure
3: imagination.
1: Hey, Carlo. All right, and so that's. See- from the good version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the, the old version, Gene Wilder version. The Gene because Wilder if version. you ever saw the Johnny Depp version, super creepy. Like <laughs> I mean, like uncomfortably creepy. Uh, but the Willy Wonka of Wall Street—that's Gary Parr. Not creepy. Great no, guy. Not creepy. Uh, very successful deal maker. Shanali Basik is here with us with this story. It's the perfect story leading us into the Memorial Day weekend. And Shanali, I think you've said on Twitter and you said to us before, uh, you may be changing beats to the high-end chocolate beat, right?
4: It, absolutely. Yeah. I got to spend um, hours at his chocolate factory last week, and I realized I could live next to the vats of chocolate. Oh yeah. Oh, my God. Where is it? It's in Fairlawn, New Jersey. I grew up in Paramus, so I'm particularly you know, close to that area. But it, the really funny thing, it's a big industrial factory, right? It doesn't look like much. It used to have the Lee and Perrin's Worcester sauce stock for the entire country. Huh. And now it has a lot of white space for a lot of luxury chocolate.
1: So t- remind us who Gary Parr is.
4: Gary Parr was the guy who helped restructure Bear Stearns during the financial crisis, sell it to J.P. Morgan, um, same with Lehman Brothers assets to Barclays. He was in the middle of much of the biggest banking mergers during, in the last 30 years, really. He sold Geico to Warren Buffett, and in the last couple of years, he moved over to become a private equity um, executive at Apollo. So he's a deal guy. He's a deal guy, right. And, and now even at Apollo, he still works on deals and strategy. And, but a lot of it is strategy and kind of where in the world they should be expanding, um, especially with their insurance company. So we actually have a
0: little bit of a snippet from the interview that you guys did with Mr. Parr earlier on Bloomberg TV. So let's listen to that.
5: So I have chocolate in my office so people can come to uh, and, and not only have a, a meeting about whatever the subjects might be, but, of course, I offer the chocolate to uh, Help, Um, but so it's it doesn't take that much of my time as I say. You know, this what I do in chocolate is instead of playing golf.
1: Well, it's a nice side hustle uh, to be sure. What what did lead him to do this, Shanali?
4: Funny. He got the idea 15 years ago with a chance encounter with the president of the Venezuelan Stock Exchange, who Makes was sense. asking people to invest in the country. Um, and he was thinking about investing in cocoa. He never did, um, not in Venezuela at least, which closed up to a lot of external investors. But over time, he ended up uh, investing in Guatemalan chocolate and Colombian chocolate. And so, you know, Latin America and, and fair, fair trade chocolate, particularly, was something that was an important thing for him. And he realized that this could be like the next coffee or craft beer. Well,
0: if you go to certain specialty stores, right, that kind of small batch dark chocolate, man, that – I go right to it but I mean it's become a bigger and bigger you know marketplace if you will and there's lots of choices to make so I can see why he has some interest in it
4: it's not dissimilar to Dandelion for example in San Francisco yeah. I mean and by the way interestingly in true investment banker form he's considering acquisitions in the future so if there's a smaller luxury chocolate to add to the chocolate to base to add to the chocolate base he definitely wants this to be the biggest luxury chocolate company in the world he's not shy about saying that he's already poured millions of dollars into this so so it's a side hustle but he really wants it to be a serious business. (laughs) Well, and we
1: are living in a time and we do a lot of this on our show and in the magazine, it feels like in the pursuit section, especially where people are willing to pay up for quality, whether it's in Mm -hmm. apparel, whether it's in fitness, whether it's in booze, whether it's in chocolate in a lot of ways. I mean, he is pointing to, you know, I I came across this company uh, recently. I was just talking about this at lunch with somebody aviator nation. It's Mm an apparel, uh, company out in LA. It's an $83 t-shirt. People are paying $83 for a T-shirt. It's a cool T-shirt. Right. But, you know, i pay a lot for chocolate. He
4: wants to open a luxury chocolate shop in a luxury neighborhood in New York also. Interestingly enough, I asked him about this because there's a lot of chocolate shops out coming up in New York. Yeah. Benchy, the Italian chocolate maker, um, who he knows a lot of people who are kind of involved in that kind of. Circle it also just opened up in Union Square, so this might become a competitive space. Who knows? I, I've got to think about because Kate
0: Crater has come by too. You know, our amazing food critic, and she um, has stopped by with boxes of chocolate. Not inexpensive, no. but they're amazing, and there's a market for it.
1: You know what I'll say too? It's the perfect. Host or hostess gift. gift, I agree. It's better than a a bottle of wine because I never know. I don't know that much about wine, but you show up at somebody's house with a really nice, like, small box of chocolate, winner. Like, you're a winner when you do that.
0: They call it craft chocolate. Sorry, I've been searching because I know we did some (laughs) stories here. Craft chocolate, like beer and coffee. Yeah you know is ready to go Mean Street so main I guess street. this
4: is already catching on right and uh, you know I think if some for somebody like Gary Parr he was a chairman of the Philharmonic for example this is going to be available at the New York City Opera over the summer he's definitely using his existing network yes. to start um, great story, story
0: but I'd like you even more if you'd actually brought some samples I'm just going to say there's some right? by
4: my desk Carol bring, uh, them, bring over. them over oh my god Shinali, come on I'll bring them
0: when I said that thing about a host and hostess <laughs> staff,
4: that
1: was not subtle <laughs> All right, Shanali Basik, great, great story. The Willy Wonka of Wall Street, he's got a sweet side hustle over in New Jersey. Go, go! Go,
3: Johnny, go, go! Go, Johnny,
0: go, go. Yes, he is in studio with us. In the house. In the house. Uh, John O'Rourkeman, anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open, normally in Toronto. What's normal about a Friday?
6: It's a great Friday in New York City. I had to be here, guys. Wonderful to be with
2: you.
0: It's great to have you here. And, I, you know, there's so much going on. We've been obsessed, uh, rightfully so, because it's impacting the markets, about U.S.-China trade. And I'm just curious what you've been noticing in terms of U.S. positioning, what we're hearing from the Chinese side, what it means for the
6: technology universe. Well, I feel like this Huawei stories is becoming one of the defining ones of this decade, I guess, depending on yeah. how it plays out. We'll... we'll rank it, Uh, but you guys were talking earlier about the comments from the president, and I think what's interesting is, for those who are surprised by Huawei being blacklisted, you could make an argument that's a relatively small group. If you look at the tensions Mm -hmm. between China and the United States over the last decade, if you add to that um, what happened with ZTE previously, and just where everything was going, right? but when the president talks about a national security threat on one hand, and then also talks about whether this is a bargaining chip, which one is it? And there, and whatever the answer may be, there are major ramifications, not just for Huawei, but for all the companies, especially U.S. tech companies that are at the center of this story as well. Well, I want to take advantage
1: briefly of your Canadian ness. Oh, sure, and eh? remind people that <laughs> your fine country, like, played an important role in all of this. One of the more dramatic your roles country, John, the, <laughs> your country in the whole. Huawei drama. That's the right. The CFO
6: was The arrested. CFO. Yeah. Taken on Canadian soil. Yeah. And then.
0: What was the feeling about that? Well, in your home turf? What were the kind of conversations you were having with folks? Not this,
6: Canada, at work or elsewhere? Well, there's a lot of themes to that. First of all, obviously, this tension between the U.S. and China is also felt between China and Canada. Right. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine for Canada right now, they're just trying to get to the finish line with a new North American free trade deal. But the tensions are very real. In fact, really, Canada's a small nation, so it's almost been aligned with the U.S. as part of those broader negotiations to try to get something done. But the tensions are sky high. And that's a dramatic turnaround From a couple of years ago, I remember Jack Ma, head of Alibaba. He came to Toronto. He went to Detroit as well. You guys Mm -hmm. might remember. They were Mm -hmm. trying to Mm -hmm. encourage a lot of U.S. business owners to sell through Alibaba. you know how far we feel from that growing relationship? And even in Canada as well, just a couple of years ago, because there was uncertainty around the U.S., there was a, a, a thought from Prime Minister Trudeau, can we build deeper relations with China, we're far from that now. Do so.
0: are, do folks in Canada, do Canadian tech companies feel like Huawei truly is kind of a state actor here?
6: Well, that's a complicated one because a lot of them have strong business ties with the business, mm-hmm. right? We've talked about this rollout of 5G. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to find telecom equipment players or telecom companies that are not in some way, shape or form tied to Huawei. And, and, and so, you, so you look at the two parts of the story. The one is obviously Huawei losing momentum in North America because of these concerns. Right. But right. then the question mark about well, you know, for for any of the big technology companies that are working with them that now have to distance themselves as suppliers. I mean, it's complicated. It's complicated for the so to answer your question. It's complicated for the Canadian companies and I think it's uh more so complicated for the US companies now because I mean, Huawei, let's not forget they're the second Largest smartphone maker on the planet now. They are making more devices than Apple,
4: um,
6: which means there's a massive ecosystem, which theoretically right now has to be unwound on some levels.
1: Well, and as you well know, it could go beyond Huawei and it could start to impact a whole other uh, set of companies You mentioned Jack Ma and Alibaba. One of the companies, potentially in the crosshairs, a rising star in the world of artificial intelligence. This is Megvi. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about that. Like, how does that... Next yeah. level play in.
6: Well, we, we get so excited about AI yeah. uh, and what you can do with it. And obviously, you use it in different ways. And this is a company that uses facial recognition. So mm-hmm. you can imagine if there's concerns out there about yeah. Huawei technology Ooh, being in telecom equipment when we're talking about facial recognition and whether this goes deeper. And, you know, I think one of the big questions is, you know, when we talk about Apple as a business and they have their closed ecosystem Um are we now talking about a closed U.S. tech ecosystem and a closed Chinese tech ecosystem? I think we kind of already had that, right. given some of the challenges people right. have, the U.S. has had in making inroads in China. But are we now completely cementing close that door? And is that a good or a bad thing? That's if, a great if, way if of we,
0: thinking about if it. If we yeah. don't,
6: if we can't know what they're building, because if Huawei can't get business done with U.S. suppliers, right, they're going to build stuff. With China's support on their own, and arguably they've already about our done conversation, that. Conversation, right, or what? Yes,
1: I'm thinking about our conversation with Chuck Robbins, and I'm thinking specifically the CEO and Chairman of Cisco, and I'm thinking specifically about 5G yeah. and 5G really being where everybody's going. And if you have these sort of competing, as you say, ecosystems, how does that complicate?
6: Well, things? Like Huawei has built their business as well alongside Google with the Android ecosystem. Right. So now this week we've seen kind of the, the, sort of a, a push away from that. So does Huawei build their own Android? Uh, they already have – I mean, we're, we're, we're learning in real time how far they are. And, and I'll be very curious. Obviously, you, there's a big Bloomberg interview with the, with the, with the head of Huawei right. coming over the weekend. So it will be great to get some perspective
0: on I also that. do wonder, you know, our allies – who do they align themselves with? That's do a great European point. allies align themselves with China? Do they do it with us ultimately, especially when you think about kind of where the tech universe, because one of the other things that Chuck Robin said of Cisco that I thought was interesting is these technology cycles can last five to ten years in terms of component supply chain. So yeah. if for some reason Huawei isn't part of it, they can be squeezed out, whether it's 5G or something. But I do wonder about the alliances and what
6: this means well, for global Well, this tech. will hurt Huawei short term if they have to go and build their own stuff even though they've built some of that that will hurt them short term but you raise a good point because if this is coming as sort of a tangent to US China trade talks a lot of people have said could there not have been a more coordinated global effort to address right. the concerns right. tied to China which maybe would have had a stronger long term net effect as to as opposed to where we are Right now, it's a great question, Carol.
1: But what you're talking about would require a multilateral approach, especially on the part of the United States. And we're living in it's, uh, I think, very safe to say, a bilateral world. And you know, you mentioned the USMCA, USMICA, as Carol likes to call it.
0: And thinking about TPP too, right? right? We chose not to be a part of that, so we have walked away from the table. But
6: China stayed in, stayed in, and then you've got even on another level that new tech. Social media initiative that involved mm-hmm. a lot of countries yeah. signed in Paris, but the U.S. was not a part right. of that. So. What
0: would you want to ask the Huawei chairman or CEO?
6: Well, uh, just whether quickly. just whether whether just get everything, <laughs> everything, Carol. How about that? <laughs>
0: From you, I'll take it. Okay, right. (laughs) John Ehrlichman, thank you so much. Really great to have you in town. Great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Anchor, BNN, Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News, of course, typically in Toronto, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. all All right. So in preparing for this next segment, I came across the following, that between 2007, 2018, Check this out, Jason. I know you've been dancing here. Uh, The growth rate of women-owned businesses generating revenues of more than a million outpaced the rate of businesses in general, which I found kind of fascinating. This is according to American Express, their 2018 state of women-owned businesses. Our next guest is zeroing in on a specific group of women entrepreneurs, those in the technology space. Uh, Nisa Amoyles is angel investor, venture capitalist, securities lawyer. She's also the author of WTF is Happening, Women Tech Founders on the Rise. She joins us on the phone in New York City. Nisa, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Tell us a little bit about uh, the premise of this book and what you set out to do by writing it. Hi, Carolyn,
3: Jason. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the premise of the book, it really, as you were talking about Peter Kelly a moment ago, uh, focuses on stories and how people are very interested in reading those stories. And I write for Forbes, so... Uh part of what I do is write stories about entrepreneurs and so I decided to write a book about 13 women founders in the areas of hard tech or frontier tech and that encompasses blockchain, cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, robotics and autonomous mobility. And basically um talked about their stories and their struggles mm. and how they are succeeding and then Talk about the fact that they still only received 2% of all venture funding last year. And, that's, and why that's is that? That's just
1: unbelievable. I mean, I have to say, like, every time I hear a stat it's like terrible. that, it stops me cold, Nisa. I mean, that is, that's insane.
0: It is. Well, and, and, with, and can I just add to it, because Bloomberg has done the story, Nisa, that talks about even women venture capitalists are not, are not inclined to fund women-backed startups.
3: So there are mixed uh there's mixed data about that and in the book I include lots of data including how women outperform and why this isn't only just moral imperative this is good business it's uh, if you're an investor and you're interested in seeking alpha there's no better place to be doing it than these undershopped undervalued companies that overdeliver and so if you're not looking there you're missing out on gains so I think, you know, one of the things you allude to is the fact that women entrepreneurs are asked different kinds of questions by investors. Um, They're asked more prevention questions instead of promotion questions. And the data has shown that when they answer or turn around those prevention questions in a way that's more about promotion and growth, they tend to get more funding. But, But, you know, the statistics are still what they are.
1: And so as you conducted these interviews and got to know these women Nisa what what were the common threads what what did you sort of pull through that where you said okay well this is something that i heard from a, a plurality a majority or or even all of them
3: Mhm well, I mean they're entrepreneurs so they have passion curiosity and commitment and and tend not to give up despite insurmountable obstacles that becomes surmountable. And I think the other interesting thing is that while many of them do have backgrounds in STEM or science, technology, engineering and math, many of them don't. And what's what's interesting is that it's not necessary to have that in order to be a successful tech entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, that's kind of interesting. And I do wonder about, you know, how we shape women girls from an early age so that they maybe are set up better to I, succeed isn't the right world, but maybe feel inclined to start up their business or start up a business.
3: Right. And I think one of the things that I learned in writing it is that STEM is marketed in a way to young girls that's very intimidating. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. if, and if you could change the way it's marketed and have them be more about Look here. You can envision something, and then actually have the tools to build it. I think more young girls would be inclined to enter STEM fields.
1: And it's interesting. You you know you point out what comes clear from the book is this whole notion, and we're talking more and more about this in a good way. It feels like the whole notion of if you can see it, you can be it, and mm-hmm. and that plays through uh, really powerfully here.
3: Absolutely.
1: All right, Nisa Moyles is the author of WTF is Happening Women Tech Founders on the Rise. She joins us on the phone from New York City.
4: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going
1: to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving.
4: Drive on.
1: Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. Just drive. And it is time for The Drive to the Close. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser are here with you. joined now by Leo Kelly, no relation, founder, chief executive officer, co-CIO of Verdant's Capital Advisors, overseeing about $2 billion in client assets. He joins us on the phone from Baltimore. I mean, who knows, Leo, maybe you and I are long lost cousins. Uh, That would be nice. You seem like a, a delightful, smart guy.
5: Uh, there's a few of us Kellys around. That
0: might be the case. <laughs> there are a
1: lot of us wandering around. It's funny. My parents are over in Ireland right now, like in the old country. You know, it's like the, the home county. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Is
0: there Kellys everywhere? There
1: are Carol- Kellys everywhere. Yeah. Leo knows that. All right. So, Mr. Kelly, tell us about what's going on in this market, because I feel like we're it's a trade on the trade right now. How do you make sense of it?
5: Well, I, th- I think the way you make sense of it, is to stay focused on uh, investing and not trading. Um, the market has clearly become very attuned to headlines, and we're one day it's a, it's a China trade, and obviously last fall it was the Fed, um, and you know, we don't know what the next issue is going to be. So I think what, what we do to stay sane in this environment is take into account the actions that are occurring in the marketplace but more importantly how do they affect earnings over a more extended period of time i I think the biggest mistake investors make in an environment like this is when when points of stress enter the market it's amazing at the very time you should extend your your point of view and your the, the length of your view um, investors tend to shrink it in point of stress which is absolutely the worst thing you can do
0: So it is kind of an interesting point, and we do see some names that have gotten cheaper over the last month or so. Is that an opportunity for you, Leo?
5: So the way we see it is, um, has the market moved enough to change a two- to three-year point of view? Um, So so when we set strategies in our portfolios, we're looking at seven ten 10-year cycles. That's a full market cycle. And when we make tactical shifts, it's a two- to three-year point of view. If you're inside that time horizon, then you're trading and so specifically carol when we look back at what occurred in the fall of last year the market moved down over 20 percent in most markets and obviously many sectors were down far far greater than that we were very active in that marketplace because Mm, that's enough of a move to shift the 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 risk return phenomena in the market a four percent move which is where we are now that that's not enough Uh, again then you're just all you're doing there is a headline's creating a small opportunity and you're looking for a headline to give you a small trade and that's not the business we're in
1: and you know i wonder when you think about this longer duration i i know that one area that you direct clients to which is much longer term and often in a good way is private equity so how do you Pick how do you choose, and what do you talk to clients about in terms of how that fits into uh, a portfolio strategy?
5: Well, our, our point our, our point of view on private equity is it is uh, an asset that over time, if done correctly, if well diversified, just like public equity, has produced returns higher than the market with less volatility. Obviously, just because portfolios aren't marked minute-by-minute minute as the public markets are. Now, it doesn't mean it's less risk, right? We're still buying businesses. They're still subject to economic swings. We're still subject to a tariff war in right. China or a trade war and all of that. But it's just not at the whim of the market pricing
1: it day by day. Right, and, and it, so, the for, the, that, the liquidity or lack thereof sort of cuts both ways, right? <laughs>
5: yeah so you 're giving up liquidity you're losing you you're lowering volatility but you're increasing return potential yeah. so for us, the key for us is we want to buy smaller deals that are more niche plays. I love income. Give me something boring with big income, especially in a in a world where there's almost no yield anywhere i mean uh, germany you 've got to pay the government to hold your money um that that's kind of absurd so Uh, give me a a deal that I can generate a lot of income or give me above average growth rate of a business like small middle market buyouts. Um, That's something a client can hold. And if they, again, have that long point of view, it's it's a very interesting risk return phenomenon.
0: Well, you know, and it's kind of interesting. um, I am curious too, what you think – the U.S.-China trade situation, ultimately, though, if it goes on longer and longer, does it mean that we're kind of stuck where we are, or even more pressure though overall on the financial market environment?
5: Well, I, I think, Carol, the first, um, the first part of that is, can it go on and on? And I don't think it can. Hmm. Um, the 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 environment we are in is two uh, very tough negotiators um, and they're sitting at the opposite end of the table and they're both hoping the other one will flinch but both have something to lose and the question i think is who is going to get hurt worse quicker um, if that's proper english so you have china and obviously china's at a bit of a disadvantage here look at the stock market return differences look at yield differences Um, the, the the chinese market is under incredible stress and strain. They've just opened up reserve requirements to, to try to stimulate lending and get their economy going again. This is painful for them. And the very weapon they used against us for years and years to build their economy is now coming back to haunt them a bit, and that is being a huge exporter of of their of their goods as well as tying themselves to the dollar both those things have had an impact on china now and put them in this position where the u.s is very strong the stock market is still at high levels right and we're still seeing incredible economic activity so i think it puts us in advantage so they they need to get this done they can't go on forever with this and by the way twenty twenty is coming i think we need to get this done trump needs to get this done as well he's equally motivated
1: well, we'll certainly see where it comes out. Leo Kelly, founder, chief executive officer and co-CIO of Verdance Capital Advisors on the phone with us from Baltimore. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.